what's really going to motivate me is when I know how what I do matters to that vision. Okay. I know and that I'm reminded of the value I give to this group that's moving us toward this. So something that's closer to the heart and not so arm's length. I think a lot of the problem with current research on teams that's missing from it is that everything, people just think that this arm length goal should be enough. Well, it's not enough. It's out here, right? I care deeply about how I'm seen as contributing to that. And this is where we start to talk about my belonging and my social worth in the team. I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? Hey guys, it's Sean, and today's conversation is all about high-performing teams and great cultures and how do we develop them. I speak with Dr. Vanessa Druskat, who is the Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at the University of New Hampshire. Now, she's an applied social psychologist, and she uses her deep knowledge of social systems to help answer real-world questions facing organizations like what leaders need to do to create superior performing teams and great cultures, why belonging could be the most critical element to understand for any team or company, and how norms shape behavior. This really is a very interesting and fascinating conversation into the exploration of great teams, great companies, what we can do to help change behavior, and what are the critical elements all leaders need to be thinking about. So if you want to dive further into Vanessa's work, please listen to this conversation and also check out the show notes where I will link up some of her popular Harvard Business Review articles. Enjoy the conversation. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I put together something really special just for the listeners of this podcast. Now, after all the years studying, learning from, and getting to coach some of the world's most successful people, I've taken the 13 most impactful lessons and compiled them, and I want to send you those 13 lessons right now, and all you have to do is click the link below that says 13 lessons, and I will send you some of the most impactful lessons I've learned from people like Disney CEO Bob Iger, the great basketball player Michael Jordan, and so many more. So if you want that right now, all you have to do is click the link below that says 13 lessons. I have just opened up exclusive access and a limited number of spots to my online community called Momentum Makers. Now, Momentum Makers is your ultimate destination for personal growth, self-improvement, and ways to live a more meaningful life. Now, you guys know me as the host of this podcast, but for more than a decade, I've been working at the intersection of elite performance, entrepreneurship, and personal development. Now, as an executive coach, former professional athlete, entrepreneur, and podcast host, I've been working with and learning from some of the world's most successful people, and I've been using that knowledge to help other people untap their potential and live their best life. Now, that's why I built the Momentum Makers community. I could not find anything else like this out there in the world. Now, for the price of a book each month, this is what you're going to get. You are going to get a treasure trove of wisdom. You get access to our exclusive masterclass community calls. So imagine getting to join one of these podcast guests, one of these true game changers or titans of industry, and you get to ask them specific questions to help you out. You also are going to get my weekly coaching videos, my 
my tools that I use with my executives, things like my ultimate productivity planner. And then you're also going to get our monthly community calls to discuss ideas and grow together. If that wasn't all, you also get access, unlimited access to all of my 50 plus book recaps and notes. Remember, guys, spots are limited, so join today. And the way to do that, all you have to do is go to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash momentum dash makers. That's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash momentum dash makers, or just click the link below. Vanessa, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Sean. It's really wonderful to be here with you. Yeah, I'm so excited to dive into you and your work, but I would love to know, Vanessa, has there been a mindset of yours that has just been incredibly impactful helping you throughout your life? A mindset? Um, yeah. Um, curiosity. <laughs> I, I have... Um, I just have a burning curiosity that's carried me throughout my life. Um, when I was a student, people always used to say, you know, you're not judgmental because you're so curious about everything. <laughs> I'm like a sponge. You know, I wake up in the morning, I get news feeds about what's going on in the world and in my field. And I I can barely, um, and I do that in bed, lying there, reading my <laughs> this stuff. I can barely get out of bed to get going, but but um, I'm just, I, I, I don't want to, retire because it's such a great thing to be a teacher right i'm a i'm a professor and so i get to share everything that i learned through my curiosity with with curious students yeah you you and i both share that that natural instinctual curiosity i, I would actually love to know though how do you go from taking all of the things you're consuming you're learning and then distilling them down and be able to share them so that other people can learn from them as well yeah good question well, for me, I have kind of buckets, areas that I focus on in particular. You know, the teams, work teams is one of them. And then within work teams, there are a few things that I pay, pay attention to, which which we um, will we'll talk about um, today. But my when I listen to things, I listen with a lens to those buckets. Hmm. So when I read or listen, and so I'm always attaching them to something that I already know, so they stick. Okay. Um, one of the things I learned when I was a graduate student, I had a colleague who was already um, attached to one particular area. He was really interested in helping behavior. So who helped, who didn't, this kind of thing. And so everything we ever talked about, he'd bring it back to helping behavior. And so I learned early on the power of having, you know, a few buckets that you're always relating things to. That's what I do. Vanessa, how do you navigate then having that, that, directional spotlight on those few key buckets, but being attuned enough and aware enough of the things just outside that spotlight that also could impact the things in, in those buckets that are important to just be aware of, even if they don't directly impact them right away. Do, do you understand yeah. what I'm trying to ask here? Yes, I do. I do, because that's my life. I think that's my competency. Hmm. My main competency um, is that I'm always looking outside the mainstream. So I read broadly. I, I um, listen to lots of different podcasts. I, um, you know, get blogs from people in all different areas and all different aspects of science and and um, social science and and so many of my ideas come from outside the mainstream. And a part of it is because I'm kind of bored with what the mainstream does, and I don't think it matters as much. And so I'm trying to make sense of what I am seeing out in the world. You know, when I go into to organizations and I work with teams or I study teams, 
what's already known doesn't provide the answers that I want. And so I'm always looking outside and I, I keep a running log. Here's, here's, here's a good trick. Um, I have kind of a running log of um, what I've learned. Um, you know, I'll just write a few things um, and that's how I remember them, you know, and I'll, I'll always cite the source where I got it from the podcast or what have you. When sometimes I listen to podcasts in the gym, I go to the gym in the morning and I'm, I'm forever grabbing my phone in the middle of a workout, stopping and typing in the notes. <laughs> Can't forget this. You know, I'm sure people do that with your podcast. You and I are very similar with that. I was, I was doing that this morning. I have, it seems like pages in, in my, in my notes folder on my phone. I've got to go back through, but with this lock, what does this look like? Is this a word document? that you just kind of evaluate yes. over time? Yes, absolutely. So I have a Word documents. I file them by date, you know, by months, by years. Um, and then I go back and flip through them and they're so exciting. And I pull things down. I, I try my best to categorize, but I'm not very good at that. Um, so that's, it's, it's, but it's, it's what makes life interesting for me is this constant learning, constantly learning new things. It's funny, Vanessa, <clears throat> you and I seem to have a similar process. I, I do the same thing. And then actually at the end of the year, my, my document, I don't know, is 150 pages, something like that. And I actually go yeah. out and I print it. So that way I, I can save it and go back oh. to it over the years. But I also, I also love the searchable files. So I, I'm just nerding out hearing about your process as well. But but I would love to know, I mean, y you've been insaturated in your work for decades now. Has there been something at the core of it all, like an underlying theme amongst everything that you've done? Absolutely. Um, there's been um, two underlying themes, I would say. Um, the first is um, my interest in social dynamics. So I, like many people who, who study teams, we were typically on the outside for, for one reason or another, um, whether we were, it was a sports teams or whether it was the culture in junior high and high school. We were often on the outside looking in, trying to figure out what's going on inside there. So a lot of my youth, um, whether I was in on the inside in some groups or on the outside, I was always wondering about the dynamics. Who was in? Who was out? You know, what was the functionality of, of, of what was going on inside? Was it effective? Was it not? And I used to do really strange things. I used to join really strange groups and see what would happen. Almost always on the outside looking in. And so it enabled me to develop a curiosity about how people get in, what makes for a functional team, and also the biases in teams. So there's always a status hierarchy in teams. You know, some people get more respect, get noticed more than others. And I never could understand how that status hierarchy came about. I was always curious about that. Um, and I always felt badly for the people who were lower in the status hierarchy. So a lot of my research has been about, um, nor, you know, uh, creating a, a flatter status hierarchy. My earliest research on teams was about self-managing teams. I, I thought, wow, this is it. You know, you create a team where, where they're managing themselves. There's got to be less of a status hierarchy in that. And people must really listen to each other. And what I found was that, that no, self-managing teams are like every other team. <laughs> and they need they need some direction. They need some help um, creating a system that allows everyone to get hurt. And so that so the first part was just my my own experience in teams, sometimes being in, sometimes being out and looking in a lot. Um, the other part 
um, is that I, my dad, I grew up in a household where my dad was in international development work. He was actually in the field of international education. And so I traveled a ton as a kid. I lived in different cultures. Um, we even, when I was in junior high, moved to um, Texas for a while from Massachusetts. And, and so I was always shifting cultures. And so, um, and seeing what it was like, you know, you'd come to one culture. I remember being um, in this British culture at one point and um, we were, rep my brother and I were reprimanded because we were trying too hard to win in these running races. <laughs> it just wasn't polite to try to win so hard. <laughs> you know, I, I'd come from a family where, uh, you know, a family of athletes and it was always about winning. You know, you're running a race. We were winning all the races and the principal came over and said, what are you doing? You know, this is so impolite. You know, so anyway, I was always flipping cultures a lot. And that, so I brought a cultural lens to my e examination of teams. And what I started to see were very different cultures in high performing versus lower performing teams. In the higher performing teams, the culture would help the team become more egalitarian so that you'd hear more voices. And that started becoming really exciting to me. And I've been exploring that for 30 years now. With, with regards to culture, I would love for you to define it here in a second, but have you mm -hmm. found that cultures are different amongst the high-performing teams, meaning there's not one, two, or three different types of culture that work well for high performance? There's a vast variety of different cultures that can work for high performance. Well, there are a vast, there are vast cultures, and, and you know, every team is a little bit different um, depending upon the organizational culture. Um, a lot of people don't realize that every team has a culture, and the organizational culture affects it. Um, but also based on who the people who are in it, you know, people make up the culture. But there are some similarities in cultures across high-performing teams. And it's those similarities um, that I find to be really important. Um, some foundational things that um, increase um, participation. You know, when you think about teams, um, and I don't know if, if we want to leap into this now or later, but you know, teams are really about sharing information and getting smarter together, right? Yep. And so, and also about helping one another. I mean, in an ideal team, you know, you're not only more than the sum of your parts. You know, you you benefit from the brains of the other people around you that you've 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 created a culture, which we can talk about that that where whereby you do help one another, right? And um, makes everyone better. And to me, that's that's the ideal, and that's what I see hmm. in high-performing teams. How do you define culture? Um, I study um, something called team norms. And so these are the habits, the routines that you see over and over. It's how we do things around here. Um, it, it's uh, social norms. Every team, every team has norms. Um, we are wired to want predictability in our teams. We're very uncomfortable with, with um, unpredictability. So we enter a team, you know, brand new team, and pretty quickly we start developing, um, I mean, very quickly, we, we start developing how we're gonna operate. And I can talk more about how that emerges if you're interested in it. Yeah, I'm very interested in that. Pardon me? Yeah, I would love at, at some point if you go into that. Oh, okay. Um, so it, it, there is no such thing as a team without norms. The question is whether or not those norms facilitate 
effective routines or ineffective? Let me give you the most obvious. The most obvious is, um, is there equal um, participation in the team? Are some people dominating? Are some people allowed to dominate? Um, that's the most obvious. There, 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 there's, there's plenty more, but you often see in um, lower performing teams or even average performing teams, you know, the people who we think are the smartest in the room, the people who who are perhaps the smartest or have the most knowledge on the, on the topic, the higher status people, if you will, or the people with more power, power tends to be resources. So if you've got power, you've got you've got more resources. It's often the team leader. You know, people listen to those people more and don't listen to the rest. And so there's an inequitability around who talks. Uh, that's a norm in in many, many teams, most teams I see. Um, the other norm is another obvious one is do you actually do the work? You know, everybody's talking about accountability. These days. That's a norm for crying out loud. That is a norm. And if you don't call out accountability issues, if you don't have a way of doing that, the norm is I don't have to do the work. And we've known that for years in, in the team research literature. So every team has norms. And what I find is that these norms, and if you want to think about ours, habits, routines. So the habit in one in one team might be when someone doesn't do the work or doesn't pitch in, we don't kind of we don't call it out. We don't bring it up. We don't do anything about it. We hope it's going to go away. So the norm is, you know, that's the norm. Versus in great teams. You don't, you're not allowed to get away with that yeah. part because we want you in, you know, we want your, your, your piece, your part is valuable to us. And that's recognized and talked about and it motivates you to want to be in. That's just part of the norm. The part of the norm is we're all in. Um, so anyway, I can talk more. I'm going to stop and let you steer me in whatever direction. No, no, no I, I love all this. It, it was funny. I was coming across a quote this morning. I was just going through some notes and I'm pretty sure it was high standards are contagious, meaning like the, those oh, people. Yeah. yeah. And so they, they really seem to rub off. Hey guys, it's Sean and we are about to dive right back into this episode. But before we do, I wanted to take less than a minute to tell you about my online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now over the years, I've personally coached CEOs, executives, and professional athletes and I've interviewed over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast. And my course, You Unleashed, compiles the most important routines, mindsets, and skills that you need to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, you will learn these things over 19 video lectures that I'm going to teach you in this course. And you can find out more about the course by heading to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed, or you can click the link below. Now, that's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. I would love to know, though, because you mentioned the impact of these norms. How early do these get norms get developed? And then how hard are they to change once they are developed? Yeah. Um, they get developed in the very first meeting. So a little known fact is that the first meeting of the team is super important. All the research shows that you start to develop a rhythm. Now you can change it. Like you can, you're still in the earlier stages. It's it's easy to say, okay, wait a minute. How do we want to run this team? How are things going to work here? Um, you know, the team leader um, can can ensure if they're facilitating the conversation that more voices get in. You know, you can re-steer the, 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 the team, but a lot of norms get laid out in the very first, in the very beginning. Um, it is useful to say, hey, what do we want our norms to be? And, you know, we, we do that in a lot of teams. You know, what are our ground rules? Show up on time, blah, blah, blah. We often then just forget about them so they don't really stick. Um, but yeah, once, you, once you've got them in play, um, they are hard to change. 
we don't even know they're there usually. We don't think about norms. They're invisible. I mean, they're discussed in amongst team researchers like myself as the most invisible but most powerful influence on behavior. Hmm. You know, we have cultural norms. You know, I have, we have norms here. You know, I teach at, I've taught at different universities. I teach here at, at the University of New Hampshire right now. And, oh, there's certain norms about the way you dress, um, you know, about the way you, how you raise your hand or you don't raise your hand in class. Um, uh, norms about everything. Uh, and people, you don't, it's like you're fishing water around the norms after a while. I mean, you, we, 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 we know that we need to adapt to them or we're going to be an outsider. So the groups that have actually been able to make change with norms, what have they yes. done to take that outside observer great view, which question. you've seemed to do a great job of? How do they do great that? Question. Great question. I, this is what I do when I go out and work with teams is I help them. I, I show them a picture of what their current norms are. So I survey them. I interview them. I, I create a picture of this is, this is what we're seeing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, do you like these or not? <laughs> You know, here's some categories of norms that can make a difference. What do you think? And so I, I I solicit their input in what they would prefer, the way they prefer to behave. Very infrequently do you find a team that really wants to have um, inequity in who talks when, you know. Uh, very infrequently do you want a team, uh, do, do team members want to have lack of accountability? <laughs> um, you know, so you bring it and you say, well, look at this. This is what you've got. Let's talk about how we're going to change it. And so we come up with an action plan and then I'll send them the action plan. We'll talk about it. We'll lay it all out. They agree to it. Who's going to enforce it? Who's going to, you know, we, we, we create a change. And now we're, now we're just getting to really organizational change, how you implement a change. And then most often they go on about their merry day and they forget about it. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I always schedule a check-in and, you know, run the riot act of what's going on. Why aren't you, what's happening? Why? And, you know, and so then there's the coaching is about, well, how do you change habits? Hmm. How do you change your habits? Well, you have to have a nudge. You have to have somebody who says, come on. Um, And I've had, um, you know, team leaders before say to me, Oh, come on, Vanessa, they're adults. They, if they wanted to do this, they would. And, you know, to me, that's just a, a fear. That's a fear talking. Yeah. No, they've told you they want this new norm. And it's your job to make sure they implement it. And so eventually it works. If they really want to do it, it works. I, and I, but I, I'm, there is a critical point at which they start to slip back. And then you got to keep moving. And when they change, you can create, you know, one of my favorite researchers, Lisa Feldman Barrett, who studies the brain, says, you know, one of our superpowers as human beings is we can create the environment we want. You know, we're not stuck with only instinct telling, we can create the environment that we want. And this is true in teams. And I've seen teams just really blossom when they create an environment that validates them, hears them, you know, makes them feel part of something. And those those are, are all about norms and routines and habits that, that allow that. I, I'm just trying to think about how does actual change happen within the organization? Just because I know how hard it is to get one individual to do it. So the yeah. teams you've studied that actually have made lasting changes, what are those yeah. critical factors that are being manipulated to for allow change to happen? Great. Okay. So... I got to wonder here about how deep I go, but, you know, let me start by saying that there is a fallacy 
that we prefer independence. We are, the value in the U.S., um, in Western cultures in general, is that we are independent individuals. Um, but the reality is that we love being part of a group where we belong and where people are really jiving and working together or cooperation. So first of all, you got to re realize that there is a desire to make this happen. People's high points at work are usually around being in a high-performing team where people are really clicking, things are really clicking. Um, and so there is that desire. So let's just hold that over there. It's not, pe people don't want to, to, to um, well, people do want, let me talk about what they do want. They do want to be able to call someone up and say, what's your advice on this? You know, we know people perform better when they can do that, even on their individual work. Um, what I usually do with team leaders is I say to them, why do you need to collaborate? Is this task something that's better done by individuals? Do they really need to interact and work together? And if they do, then I want you to tell the team why. What's the goal? What are we aiming at? So there has to be a bigger reason for it. Okay. There has to be a reason that we're something that we're working toward. What are we working toward together? What are we aiming at together that kind of brings us together? Um, and so typically when I work with teams, I'll have uh, leaders kick off anything we do with constantly talking about what's the benefit of better collaboration, mm -hmm. because it's collaboration that makes a high-performing team high-performing. Um, and then like, back to this issue of them enjoying it, um, if they don't enjoy it at the beginning, they do once they start to see it happening. You know, there's always people who drag their feet and think, uh, you know, but the fact of the matter is we know, we know from brain research now that people get dopamine highs when they're in, you know, relationships where people are helping one another. We, we're wired to work in teams. We're wired to want to cooperate. Only we only do it under some circumstances. If others are taking advantage of us, we don't want to cooperate. That's where norms come in. So we create that environment and it feels good and we know we're aiming at something important and it enables the change. You you had That's, a line. Yeah. No, you, you had a line ahead. in one of your papers I just want to read. You said the power of a team's norms to induce behavior cannot be overstated. Strong, clear team norms have greater influence on team member behavior than personal beliefs and personality traits. Changing behavior in teams is more easily accomplished by changing team norms that define acceptable behavior than by attempting to change team members' values or beliefs. I feel like that's that's pretty powerful and impactful. That's it. Yeah. You just, you just, that <laughs> so, I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to make sure. Good eye on that. Yeah, yeah, we, we put that one in there. But but one of the things you, you, were, you were mentioning a minute ago around the leaders, and this ties into to that quote, is getting everyone to have that shared vision, thinking about, all right, why are we doing this? And so you hear yes. a lot of, in, in teams, in high-performing environments, you, you've got your vision, you have the values. I'm just wondering how all of these actually impact and influence the real behavior that's happening within the team. We can have all of our okay. values on the wall. From your research, what have you seen? Do those actually okay. translate to real action and real behavior? Let me tell you when they do. Okay, yeah, that's helpful. First of, all, first of all, we absolutely need to have something that we're aiming at together, that we're all in for. And, and 
Um, you, you know, you need to have a goal. What are we moving toward? Um, and it's got to require all of us. And it's got to feel, be exciting. It's got to be emotionally engaging. I just want to remind you here for a second that there is no motivation without emotion. And so it's got to be something that's emotionally engaging and that we're all in on. But that's out at arm's length. Okay, that, that mission out here, I love your visual of it on the wall. What's really going to motivate me is when I know how what I do matters to that vision. Okay, I know and that I'm reminded of the value I give to this group that's moving us toward this. So something that's closer to the heart and not so arm's length. I think a lot of the problem with current research on teams that's missing from it is that everything, people just think that this arm length goal should be enough. Well, it's not enough. It's out here, all right? I care deeply about how I'm seen as contributing to that. And this is where we start to talk about my belonging and my social worth in the team, okay? So I don't feel like I belong here. Belonging and social worth are synonymous, okay? So let me now, let me tell you what is social worth. Social worth is that I, my personal contribution matters to others around me. We are wired to care that others see our personal contribution, that others notice it. We think we're not. We, 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 we think we're just fine working in our little corner. Not true. <laughs> Your brain research shows that if you get a stranger on the street to say, Sean's work has changed my life. Sean, not only are you blah, 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 not only are you awesome, the way you go about doing your work has this kind of impact on me. We're just flooded with endorphins when we hear that. And that's a stranger on the street. Just you, you okay. even saying that, I can feel my brain lighting up. I would love to I see my, my brain under the fMRI right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels so good. Okay. Well, what we want is to that for that to happen in the team. And in fact, so we're going to talk about this as our social worth. Our social worth to the team matters. And that really turns us on. So um, the, the okay, I lost my train of thought here. Um, Belonging, the social worth. And then- Yeah, so our social worth, <laughs> yes, here it is. We now, um, we now understand that self-esteem, you know, everybody focuses on self-esteem. Self-esteem is a proxy for your perceived social worth to the group. Mm -hmm. People see you as valuable and adding something your your self-esteem scores go up okay okay so that's just one aspect of belonging and so now so we have the thing on the wall and then we're in the meetings every day let's think about talk about the opposite we're in the meetings every day and there's sean sitting in the meeting and he doesn't really feel or notice that he's contributing to that on the wall it makes him feel less worthy of being in the team less important to the team um, you know, he can disappear and nobody will notice it. Think about the motivation that comes out from that versus the motivation of you being constantly reminded, great idea, Sean, that really matters. That's going to help me in this way. That's going to move us toward this way. And so that's the other thing, the norm of recognizing people's value of noticing it, looking for it, um, understanding it, um, it brings you bring, bring you closer to a sense of belonging and, and it, it motivates people to want to 
um, continue giving energy toward meeting the goal. Does that make sense? No, 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 it makes perfect sense. But it, but it makes me think about, because in any high-performing team, I'm assuming that they're stress testing ideas, they're, they're pushing each other, they're, they're testing. So I'm just wondering how that, that, that complexity, right. how, how that gets untangled. Yes, okay. Um, so first of all, um, most teams have low levels of belonging. The average if team you were to has walk low... into a hundred companies, how many actually have a, a good sense of belonging here? Yeah, we would talk about fifteen percent. Okay, ten percent maybe. Okay, um, and so what that means is when you don't have a sense of belonging, you tend to fight more. Hmm. You cannot. What's happened? What we now know is that you can't get yourself in. It's impossible to make your make people value you. They have to invite you in. Okay? So a lot of negativity in teams stems from people's insecurity in the team about where they stand. Mm -hmm. So the people who keep talking and talking and talking because they don't feel like they've been heard. Yeah, they haven't been heard. <laughs> um, and so what happens is we lose our self-control in moments when we don't feel like we belong. It's a strange phenomenon that social scientists have looked at um, where they can't quite... Um, figure out why why do we behave so badly when we when we don't feel like we belong shouldn't we be more ingratiating and well the problem is ingratiation doesn't work i can i can start you know being really super nice to all those people who are ignoring me and then they're not going to start paying attention to me and so what happens is we start to act out and at least we get some attention so anyway that's that's one thing so just hold that over there for a moment. Now, let me tell you what happens in, in, in high-performing teams. We build a baseline level of relationship. So you know that you're respected, that you count, that your contributions matter, that you belong. That baseline allows us to ignore you like crazy, disagree with you, <laughs> fight with you. It, it allows us to create the environment where we can disagree with you without setting you off and thinking I can, you know, I can disagree with you, Sean. And then, and you'll say, well, wait a minute. What about my idea? I'll say, you know, look, I love you, Sean. You have, often have great ideas, but this one is not one I'm going to agree with. And that's basically the message, whether I say it or not. Okay. So Stephen Covey has this phenomenal concept called the emotional bank account. Okay. And basically what he says is that you need to put deposits in the emotional bank account because you're going to be withdrawing them all the time. And in teams, we're constantly withdrawing them, right? Because we don't always agree with you. We need to ignore you right now. It's not your area of expertise. And you're saying something that's, that's you know, not quite right. And we got to give you some feedback, by the way, because you're cutting everybody off. All right. So, you know, you, 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 you hear this developmental feedback and you, but when you know that you belong, there's enough in the emotional bank account that you're not on edge. It's so much different. And so, um, you know, I, I want to say one more thing before I open, come back to you and let you ask more questions about it. By the way, this stuff is involuntary. Okay. So this is the thing that blew me away when I first started studying belonging um, and lack of belonging. Okay, our feeling that we're inconsequential, invisible, which happens so often in teams. Um, we, back in the day when we lived in tribes, which we did for millions of years, 
if you were kicked out of the tribe, if you were irrelevant, you were basically dead. Mm-hmm. Okay, you couldn't procreate. You were you couldn't um, you know save yourself from the woolly mammoths and the, and the the violence outside of the tribe. And so we're wired to notice how people treat us and to know whether we're in or not. And there's tons of data on this, and I can elaborate on it if you want. But basically what it shows is that when we feel like we belong, we thrive, okay? We put up with more. We give more. We're more likely to share our best information. We're more likely to cooperate. When we don't feel like we belong, when we're on edge, it's like we're back in the day, like we're in junior high, or like we're back in the day in the tribes, where we're part of our attention is focused on how do we stand? Where are we right now? Am I in or am I out? And that's the kind of feeling that makes it tough when you get negative feedback or when people don't dis- when people disagree with you. When you're in that kind of a situation, it's involuntary. You get upset. You can't think as clearly. You are not your best self. Mm-hmm. We, you can, I mean, I'm sure people on your listening to this podcast have been in that situation. Yeah. Anyway, let me stop. I, I have a million questions I could go to right now. But, yeah, but one, because this go. is top of mind, I was talking to someone uh, who's in a major tech company and they're experiencing a ton mm-hmm. of layoffs where they feel their team seems like has that foundational structure where they can disagree. They still feel that sense of belonging. I don't, maybe it's, you have not seen this yet. But what happens when the the team has that foundation built and then thousands of people are being laid off and they're concerned if they're going to be part of that group, even if that group has a great foundation? Yeah. It happens. Hmm. We know that. There is never an expectation that you're completely completely Hmm. safe. There's always, you know, we're not irrational in the sense that we think we're we're we're, we're free from from never getting laid off mm-hmm. so first let's talk about the people who do get laid off um you know i i, I talk to people who are in sports teams and people get traded yeah. you know um that happens but what really matters is that when i'm in how am i treated how do i feel about myself who is the me that goes out into the job market afterwards? You know, I mean, there's a fascinating study, by the way, while we're on this, and I'll, and I'll, I'll come back to what you, your, your question in a second about getting laid off, um, about fist pumps in, in, in NBA basketball games. Yeah. You know, the fist pumps, the hugs, the high fives. It turns out that a great study that was done by a guy at UC Berkeley and his graduate student, I'm assuming it's his graduate student, um, where they found that those the teams where those did that first of all the players did better hmm. those players they measured you know they measured early on they controlled for everything like previous pit play what your expectations were supposed to be they did all kinds of statistical controls so they could really zero in on how important were these fist pumps and this touching behavior to you personally well a couple of ways a you did better okay so you come out of a team like that in the tech industry and you know you're good. You know what you can contribute, right? Even though you're totally bummed out. Uh, the other thing that happened, by the way, in those teams is that they shared more. They were less likely to hog the, the basketball. They were more likely to block other people. We call that pro-social activity, right? We, we engage in pro-social behavior that um, facilitates others' success. So anyway, back to this. Um, all right, the people who survive the layoff, what do you do with them? Well, you talk about it. You make sense of it. Hmm. 
you know, no leader can say, look, I can't, I can protect you completely. Um, but they can say, uh, you know, they can tell you what they know. And the more they know, the better. And keep in mind, people care how people care that you care about them. They want to, they want to work in an environment where people recognize their social value and people care about them. So let me give you the, let me give you the definition of belonging. Belonging is um, where I am known, joined, you know, supported, and genuinely accepted. All right, that's what they want. They want an environment. They want a um, a, a colleague um, at Boston University, Bill Kahn, talks about having a a safe space. You know, like a um, a cocoon where I, when I come in here, this is how I'm taken care of. Now, you don't want to have such a cocoon that you're not reaching out and getting ideas and, and you're too cloistered. That's that's bad, too. But, um, the, you know, this is a safe space for me. Um, so anyway, let me stop right there and ask your follow up. Yeah, no, no. To, to highlight the uh, the study on, on the teams touching, I, I had a college coach. He must have came across that study because one season we did that every single time there was a score. Or we scored our team fully came together and we tried to yeah. have as many touches and interactions. Um, he, he didn't lay out. This is where he researched this, but uh, I was definitely part of that. Um, and so one of the things that I, I want to follow up on is what you were bringing up here just around the, the safety, the belongingness. What does this have to do with some of the buzzwords we hear around trust and psychological safety? How do these vary? Sure, sure, sure absolutely. Um, so first of all, one, one of the things you might have uh, not have picked up on in 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 anything that I've said so far um, is that it's important to be known. So the foundation here is not just I can't belong if if you don't know who I am, if you don't know the gifts that I can offer the team. You know, we talked about validating those gifts that I do offer. We haven't talked about this process of getting to know one another. So um, as an aside, high performing teams, people know each other. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they know, you know, do you have a partner? Do you have kids? What do you do on the weekends? Every team differs on that, on how they know. It, but they, they, they know something about you, what you care about, the challenges in your job. You know, the better we know someone, uh, the better we're known, um, the more we can um, feel a sense of, of, of belonging. And now I'm forgetting your question. So why am I talking about being known? It was just around the wording with, with trust and psychological safety. Yeah, trust, but... trust and psychological safety. Okay. So there is no trust without knowing people. Hmm. So one of the things that's um, clear is that um, you, you don't have a secure sense of trust. So if you don't know me, um, then, then, then if you don't show me, you trust me. And how are you going to trust me if you don't know me? Okay? Mm -hmm. It's a mutual back and forth. So trust absolutely matters. But it comes through norms. It comes through the routines. And one of the norms that matters that we've seen matter um, is um, understanding, we call it understanding team numbers, is we understand each other, okay? So those, that norm leads to building trust, all right? How, how, uh, okay. how, how does that knowing happen? It happens through intentionality. It happens through what you do um, in your team. And let me come back to that. Sure. We can talk about yep. how I've seen teams build that in a second. But first, I want to I want to touch on psychological safety. So psychological safe, safety, like trust, it's what we call in, in the business, in, in research, an emergent state. It's a state of mind. I feel safe. I can say whatever I want. So psychological safety is that I can 
I can, I don't have to hold back. I can say what I want. Um, and it's super important in teams, but it comes out of norms. Hmm. It grows out of those norms. And the norms, my argument uh, is there hasn't been enough research on what creates psychological safety, but it's it's unequivocal for me um, that it's that sense of belonging, at least a little bit of it. It's the norms that enable me to know that there's enough in my uh, emotional bucket, right, yeah. that I'm not going to be harmed by saying something. Hmm. Um, you, you know, when we when we when we're in teams, one of the one of the reasons why social norms are so powerful is because we want to belong. We want to be part of the team. Worst case scenario is that we're part of a team and everybody's nice and nobody really says what they're thinking. You see this in average teams a lot. Um, and, and and in other words, it's not psychologically safe enough for me to speak my truth. I have to kind of go along to get along in this team. And so if you you can build norms that get around that. You can say, no, in this team, first we're going to get to know each other and we're going to get to what we're going to value each other. And then we're going to build norms that help us speak our truth. And we're going to validate it when people do. We're going to accept it. So in the high, high performing teams I work with, that when people speak their truth, people are glad they did. Not every time, but in general, they're glad they did. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. I, I would I would love now though if you if you expand on on knowing and what you were knowing diving into each other. Like, yeah absolutely all right so um there's no way to know people on your team without an investment of time now is this and, like immediately when someone's coming into an organization we are we are going to put more emphasis on it up front because there's going to be long term effects of this as opposed to we're going to trickle it in as you progress here trickle it in okay trickle it in is the best. So when you first join the team, uh, you do some, you know, get to, get to know you stuff. Um, you know, when you first form a team, let's say when you first form a team, you do some get to know you stuff. Um, and then uh, the great teams trickle it in at a time. We'll do a personality survey, you know, once a quarter um, so we can learn more about your, you know, um, your style and this or that or blah, blah. What, dif what makes us different, right? Um, who you are, who I am. Um, or we'll do a check-in when we get in, you know, you can do a check-in in three minutes where we say, you know, what's on your mind, what's keeping you up at night right now. Um, and you learn about what people, what's on people's mind. This is where I can say, Hey, my son made that na national honor society this week. You know, that's, what's on my mind right now. <laughs> and then, you know, or, um, you know, or my mom passed away, you know, or, or things like that, that matter to people. And you, you slowly on, you, you slowly peel away the onion layers. That, that I like to think about it as onion layers. And it's, it's, so it's a little bit of self-disclosure. The relationship literature talks about the importance of self-disclosure. You can't build a relationship without people sharing something. And so typically what happens is we share some little bit. Um, and then if it seems like that was okay, maybe we'll share more next time. And then somebody else will share one little bit, you know? Um, and, uh, and so it, 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 that, that's how the best teams do it. It just trickles in and they know it's important. So they make time for it. You know, at the end of a meeting, they'll do a checkout. How's everybody doing? You know, what, or what could we've done better? Um, you have time for people to share things with the, with the full team online remotely. Um, if, if you never have that. And, you know, one of the things I have to work with when I, when I develop teams, whether they choose that norm or not, 
do it anyway. Hmm. Always open up any kind of um, work with teams, any kind of coaching, any anything with some exercise where we get to know each other a little bit. Um, and it varies from team to team on what that means. You mentioned sharing a minute ago, which which has me intrigued. Sometimes people want to want to hold back. They don't want to share their best ideas. They they want to keep them close, tight to the vest. What have you found in the groups where where belonging that foundation has been built about their willingness to share their best ideas? Okay, so so first let me say that that is a rampant, rampant problem. Team leaders have no idea how how often this happens hmm. and that is that people don't share their best they don't um let go of their own um sort of selfish needs um and they kind of hold back a little bit and by the way we are really good at faking it <laughs> okay so there's research on this and how people how people do it, how people make it look like they're sharing their best yeah. or look like they're all in <laughs> when they're not really all in. This to me is the number one problem I see in organizations is that no everybody's clueless at how little people are really sharing. And there's been surveys that have showed that, that some of the biggest problems in teams. So what happens is that let's come back to this to our to our um, you know, whatever you want to call it, our, our tribal brain. We like, we like to be all in. We love to be in teams. We feel good. We feel at our best. We thrive when we're in teams, when we are all cooperating, when we're all in. But we're no dummies. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do that if other people aren't. We don't want to be played the fool. I think that's one of the phrases in Norbert Curry's a, a, a social psychologist at Michigan State. We don't want to be played the fool. Um, and that is where we share our best and nobody else does. Okay. And so this is where norms become important. So what is happening here? And, you know, how are we operating? And, and are people taking those risks? And, and, and let me tell you, it happens at the highest levels. Um, um, you know, recent survey by Egon Zender. Um, Egon Zender is a consulting firm. Um, and they um, studied a thousand CEOs around the world. And they asked them how aligned on goals are your um, are the folks in your in your you know C-suite te team that you lead, and 54% said we're not aligned on the goals. Hmm. So we're not all focusing in the same direction. Yeah. We're not cohesive and we're not aligned. So what does that mean? What does that look like? I see it all the time, where we're you know we're talking about what we're doing, but I'm holding back because so what I really care about is over here. And so if you're sharing an idea that doesn't quite jive with what I really care about, I'm not going to support your idea. Okay. And so what you need to do is you need to intentionally build norms, intentionally get to know one another, build this synergy. And so what? How do we define synergy? We define it as as we're greater than the sum of our parts because my ideas can make your ideas better, right? And so that comes out of, of, of the norms that you create that make people want to come in. And belonging is the foundation of that. Hmm. that I'm valued here, that, I'm, that we have open conversations, that I have a sense of influence. I influence people. They listen to me here. You know, this, this matters in belonging. Yeah. This has me thinking for the leaders out there. Now they've got all these ideas kind of floating around in their head. One of the things you brought up a few minutes ago makes me think of the the uh, ancient French general uh, de Sachs, who says like the most important trait of a general is to be able to move the human heart. So we know that's a, f a foundational element of this. What yeah. else are the, the big factors that 
these leaders need to be thinking about day to day yes. with their teams? Great question. Great question. So first, you know, I'm a huge fan of emotional intelligence. I talk about my model as being um, a team emotional intelligence model. And I came to emotional intelligence because of my interest in teams, where I learned that reading the emotion in the room was the key to building a good team. Mm. So I was not, you know, going to emotional intelligence first. I, when emotional intelligence came out of the sky, I was like, this, this is the label of what I see happening in teams. So one of the things that matters is the leader has to recognize that emotion matters, that there is no motivation without emotion, and that those people in your team are emotional beings. We are not as rational as we like to think we are. We, you know, we can't leave our emotional selves at the door. And if we did, there would be no collaboration. Okay. Um, so I always like to say that emotional intelligence matters for team leaders. Perfection isn't the goal. You know, none of us are perfect at that, at, at any of these things. Um, the, the idea here is you have to recognize that the, um, that you have to touch the hearts, that the hearts matter, including the heart of the person that needs to know that they matter to you. They matter to you. And so you, a, a team leaders need to know that part of their role is touching the hearts of people. But it's not enough that you have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with your with these people, your reports. Well and good. You need to coach them to be the best. You need to give them advice. You need to let them know you care. And hey, you may have to lay them off at some point, but that doesn't mean you don't care, right? You're not invested in their best interest. You need to give them the feedback that they need to hear because you care. You know, we think about feedback, my colleagues and I think about feedback as a caring behavior, developmental feedback. Okay. But that's not going to build your team. What builds your team is when you help them to care about one another. Right. And so part of the role of a team leader is building the norms, the culture that encourages and makes space for building relationships so that we can care about one another. So that when I hear you talking about the problem that you're having in your division or in your job, and I have an idea that can help you, I share it. I don't hold back because I'm worried about shining myself. I want you to shine because I care about you. So if, if one fascinating study that I'll never forget is that with it, you know, back to our, our, our tribal brain, um, we care so much about belonging. You know, remember, we don't want to be kicked out of the team. And if, if we have to wonder whether or not we're, we, we belong, we're, we hold back and we're scanning the room for messages. It turns out that if there's even one person in the team that's looking at you or treating you like you don't matter, your brain involuntarily thinks you're at risk of, of everyone thinking that you don't matter. Mm. And so it has to come from the team members as well. It can't just come from the leader. Therefore, the culture you build matters. Just, so that's the other piece of knowledge. Yeah, just, just so I'm clear. Thanks for, no, no, for no, listening to my long response. No, no, <laughs> the, the, this is beautiful. Believe me, there's there's so many things I'd love to explore. But with that brain study, so this could be anyone, and they, they might not even intend to have this look on their face, but just the way we interpret it 
automatically we think the world is against us. So if we're up on stage giving a speech, there's one person who is out in left field. Shaking their head no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden we think this group of 500 people are shaking their head no at us. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we, we learn to manage these things, right? So I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you've been on stage like I have where you see that one person shaking their head and disagreeing with you. You automatically look for the one that's shaking their head. Yes, yeah, so that you can manage yourself. So that's not going to deflate you. It's send you down a downward spiral. If you can do that, you do that. That's We, we will learn those strategies, right? Um, but that takes energy. Hmm. While I'm scanning the room, I'm not focused on yeah. what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> and I'm certainly not focusing on you and the goals of the room. I'm focusing on me. Yeah. Okay, And that, 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 that's, that's part of what happens. Um, wait, what else did you ask? Uh, that last that? question, no, it was, it was just about that. Oh. There, yeah. do, do you have something you, you want to keep going on? Because if not, I have something. I'm... Okay. Um, well, just you know, back to this. To the to our focus on the on the on the one person. There's always going to be one person out there. But again, I want to come back to the emotional bank account. Yeah, please do. So I'm going to care less about you shaking your head if I know you yeah. think I that I have a contribution. Hmm. That's great, v- Vanessa. You have so much deep insight now and understanding of this. Say you were like, you know what? I'm done teaching. Uh, I've been curious enough. I, I want to go out. I want to build a company, and I'm going to start from day one. What what are what are you doing? in the early stages? Because we have a lot of startup founders, a lot of entrepreneurs, they, they want to think about the, how, how do we positively springboard the starting conditions so that later on we can make this a success? Yes. Okay. I would, I would um, get everyone in the room and I would remind them, um, you know, we'd have a, a heart-to-heart discussion about how the culture that we build together matters. And what we're going to do is we're going to create a contract around that culture. Now, let me me just, uh, one of the things I haven't mentioned to you is that norms and the routines that build a culture stem from values. And so I would want to get the values out. What do we care about? What kind of environment do we want to build here? What do we, what do we want to do together? And I would say, okay, let's, we're all, we're going to, this is how we're going to operationalize it. This is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to demonstrate respect. Okay. Um, this is how when I would say we're going to have conflicts. What are we going to do when we have it? I would plan it in advance. Now, what's going to happen is stuff happens, yeah. right? And that's when you come back and you say, okay, we said we were going to do this. What do we want to alter? Hmm. So you ha- you have to have one mind on what really is happening. And you'd have to do your best to hold people accountable to that, right? And get some help. Get some help. You don't want to be the only one holding people accountable. When I work with teams around changing their norms, I don't put it all on the team leader. I'll give one norm to two members and say, you're responsible for this one. Hmm. You come up with the, what those check-ins are going to be. You know, Make sure they're no longer than three minutes You know, or whatever it is. You come up with the surveys we're going to take once a quarter or once after, you know, twice a year. Um, and you, know, you, you get some help on, on, on that matter. And I would just remember that you are going to forget about that culture, but it matters. It matters. And the way we treat one another matters. And it's not logical and it's not rational. But let me say something about emotion here. Um, basically, our emotion, emotional system, which is not rational, it, it tells us whether we should approach or avoid something. And back to psychological safety, let's say. My emotional system is going to tell me whether I should approach and say what's on my mind mm. um, or whether I should hold back. 
Um, it's going to, uh, do I approach and do I ask for help around this? Or is that going to make me look too vulnerable mm-hmm. and have people judge me, yeah. right? It's your emotional system that lets you know whether it's approach or avoid. And so one way to think about it is you want to have an approach culture as much as you can. And so emotion matters. It doesn't always have to be positive, but you want to create that emotional bank account and you want to check in on that periodically. Now, here's the next thing. There are challenges constantly. And so you got to come back to this contract and you got to think about it. And you got to say, are we living our values? And um, here's the other thing. As the company grows, um, you need to remember what those values are. And, and certain challenges come up. We know um, one of the things, a great way to onboard new people is to show them the contract. Show them the values. Let those values come through in the way you hire. You talk about them as this is the way we're living it. And it enables you to to to, to, to manage that, right? Um, now, let's be careful here because there's a, something I haven't mentioned to you yet, which is actually very much at the core of what I, what I um, talk about in teams, is the diversity of the team. <laughs> You do not want people who are all like yourself on your team. We know that the mo- one of the reasons why you need to have this environment where people feel psychologically safe, where they where they do trust, where they feel like they belong, is they need to be able to bring up their disagreements. Okay, the more disagreements you have, the more information on the table you have, um, the better decisions you make. Mm-hmm. We know from research that even if you don't take those ideas, those crazy ones, they make the decision that you do make better. They alter what you do choose. The more diverse your team, the more different kinds of ideas you're going to come up with. So just because you know you don't want your values to be a proxy for, you know, in my case, come on, I love being on teams with 60-year-old women with you know, kids in their early 20s. Oh, and if they like to hike and ski, I love those folks. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's not the team. That's not going to be the best team for me. The, the the work I've done in my life, the best work I've done on teams is always when I have to argue with people because they're so different than me. Mm-hmm. And so there's no doubt about that. The research is quite clear. So anyway, I, I go back to whatever you were asking. I hope hopefully I've answered. Your no, question. Vanessa, believe me, I, I could spend 10 hours diving into all of this, um, which, which I wish we had. Well, one, one thing I'm, I'm curious now is I feel like we've got a pretty good understanding of the baseline there. We've got belonging. We've got trust. We have psychological safety. We're working towards a shared vision. We have the values that are really influencing those social norms. What have you seen that are above that to really helping unleash individuals' talents? I kind of view all oh, those yeah. things we just discussed are going to, yeah. they're going to be more influential, but above that, what are the other things leaders can be thinking about and individuals just to help themselves perform? Yeah. Okay. Very good. Um, first of all, a great team can help unleash those talents. Mm-hmm. When you've got people behind you, I mean, we have so many blind spots. <laughs> We have so many. We, we're only learning now the brain research around the blind spots that every single one of us have, including blind spots in our strengths and weaknesses, right? Um, the higher you climb in the hierarchy, um, the less self-aware you are because people aren't telling you the truth oftentimes. But anyway, so having a good team behind you that's going to help you fill in those blind spots, at least give you ideas. You don't always have to take their ideas. The more important it is. Um, and, and so if, if the team... If the leader builds a team that it where where whereby people have others supporting them and not just the leader, 
that matters a lot. That's what happens in the best teams. Okay. Um, but also, how do you turn on um, how do you turn on an individual's ability to thrive? Um, and that is by giving them feedback, by caring about their development, by validating their importance to you and the group, hmm. by creating an environment. And, and this is the, the, the research bears this out. Let me tell you a story about a, um, that I'm writing about this. I haven't mentioned to you, but I'm in the middle of writing a book, which is why all this stuff is top of mind for me right now. And I'm in, in the book, one of the chapters I'm writing, um, I'm, I'm starting with this story about a study that was done by a graduate student of mine. She was interested in change behavior in which um, you know mid-level managers under, that were undergoing change embraced the change and which kind of resisted it. So you would think at the mid-level manager level, you know, you'd get, you know, these are people who, who matter in the organization. And well, so she studied them for six months. She collected all kinds of data. What ended up differentiating those who embraced the change, you know, did, did lots of experiments, helped out a lot. And those that just kind of put their toe in the water, but didn't really. And she knew that because she was interviewing them constantly. So she knew who was all in and who, who wasn't really all in, right? Not the fake behavior, but the real behavior. And it all came down to one thing, which was whether or not the person felt they were irreplaceable in their manager's eyes. Whether the manager treated them like they mattered. Silly, not silly. So the, the questions were things like, I know I'm important to my boss. My and 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 the stories they told. Well, how do you know you're important to your boss? Um, the my boss comes to me and asks for my ideas and says and takes my ideas. Not always, but often enough. Always comes to me and asks. My boss um, said, "If you tell me this is a good idea, I know it is." <laughs> you know these little things. Um, my boss let me represent him or her on this on this task force because uh, my boss trusts my opinion okay so these little things so what if you don't trust their opinion there's always something you trust about them and you want to grow them to be someone that you can trust that's i know uh, that that um I, anyway let me let me stop and ask if you have follow-up questions on that i, I can't uh, let me let me end that little bit by saying something uh, um that um neuroscientist named Matthew Lieberman, who's at UCLA, says, he says, you know, we've learned so much about the human brain and what goes on inside our brains in the last 25 years. We now know that organizations aren't designed as well as they could be because they're not designed for the human brain. The human brain is a social brain. We need to know that we matter. We need to feel socially connected. And unfortunately, organizations aren't designed enough around that. And, and that's, that's the key point here. You want to make, make your mark. You want to a, a, be an entrepreneur whose organization works. You got to remember that. You, you, you can't do what we've done for so many years. You can't be like the, like the 
like the VP of engineering I was asked to coach, who said to me, why should I do all this? These people make a lot of money. Well, I'll never forget this organization. They're lucky they have a job. This is, a, this is a, by the way, in a, in a very high level and a, in a very well-known, highly respected organization. He said, nobody ever had to motivate me. And, and uh, you know, how do you respond to that? I mean, I, I wanted to say to the guy, yeah, good point, man. Good point. <laughs> but it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. We thrive. When we thrive, we perform at our best. And that's what you want. You want to create a, a, an environment where people can thrive. Hmm. I am I, intrigued, though. That natural curiosity, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the time, that natural yeah. curiosity that you have, this, I mean, th- were you born with this? And I'm wondering how you've seen people and leaders tap into those innate things that we can't fully describe, right? Like you don't know why you love just reading all this and collecting all of this, but it's in you. And if you're put in environments where that is amplified, I have to, I I have an idea that human flourishing really is going to transpire there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to know what matters. Um, it, you know, it could be some, it could be the, the home I grew up in, you know, um, it could be, um, I, you know, I don't know where the, where the core of it happened, but I do know that I sought out environments where, where people valued my ideas and valued me coming up with new and different things. How'd you have the self-awareness uh, to understand yeah. what you were looking for? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, we've all had, I mean, we've all had many jobs. I've had a lot of jobs. And in some of those, in some of those environments, I was able to add value. And um, I was able to use my curiosity to improve things. So I do think that it's a combination of who we are. um, And also, um, whether or not we're allowed to, to, to bring that who we are and our curiosities do we feel like we have the space for curiosity? I talk to a lot of managers that are worried about their own their own situation. It's not a good recipe. You know, one of the things I teach, I, I do a lot of work on emotional intelligence for leaders as well as emotionally intelligent teams. And one of the first exercises I always do with my when I'm developing um, emotionally intelligent leaders is I I lay out, you know, what are the behaviors you see in the best leaders you've ever had? And we lay it all out and we look at it up and we said, okay, there's the model. You know, they care, they do this, they have clear goals. They, you know, it's pretty easy for all of us to design this model, right? And and then we say, then I and then I say to them, well, okay, if we know that this matters, why don't we engage in this? And the, the answer is always, oh, I'm too stressed. I get too much going on. How do how do I, you know, this is always us when we're at our best. But if we're at a place where we can't be at our best, or we think we're at a place where we can't be at our best, um, then we can't flourish. I mean, the behaviors, the emotionally intelligent behaviors and the caring happen so often when we flourish. That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so part of this is finding that environment where you can flourish, you know, where they do talk about the values when you come in. Um, and I mean, that's a luxury. Vanessa, a luxury. If, yeah. if, if you could do this, I know you, you talk to a lot of people. If you could sit down, interview anyone in the world dead or alive and just spend hours getting to ask questions to them, who would you love to interview? Um, 
Oh my God, that's such a great question. Well, for one, I would want to have a, have a long conversation with Matthew Lieberman, who is the neuroscientist I follow like crazy on uh, at, at UCLA, a social neuroscientist. He's also a psychologist, and I've, I've never talked to him. It make, makes me think I should pick up the phone and call him. Um, the other one is uh, um, a man named Samantha Goshaw. He's he's passed. Uh, now he's a, was an old um, business school professor at uh, INSEAD in, in, um, in France. And he made such an impact on managers. He had such a positive impact on the lives of managers. Um, and um, I would just want to know, how did he get people to listen to him? <laughs> you know, how do you go out there and get people to let go of their, their idea that the world is rational and people are rational? And how do you convince them that emotions matter? And he just had a huge impact on the world. So those two, and there's, I know there's more. There's way more people. My mother, who's passed, people like that. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa, for this beautiful conversation. As always, everything will be linked up in the show notes about Vanessa Druscat. I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much, Sean. It's been my, my great pleasure to be here. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.